brothers and sisters, as Christians, there should be truths of our faith that we should be willing to stake our lives on. Truths such as the inspiration of the Bible, the Trinity, the full deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the bodily resurrection of Jesus and his bodily return. These are things we should be willing to die for. And then there are other truths, other convictions, which we can be quite certain that we will take to our graves. They're not saving truths, but we've studied these things long enough and hard enough, and we've studied the evidence and the things contrary to it, and we're convinced that we will die believing these things. But then there's a third category, things that we believe we're right about, but not with the same dogmatism, not with the same rock-solid certainty that we are certain about these other things. I may have told you about the pastor I heard uh, years ago who said a lady accused him of this. She said, Pastor, you always think you're right. And his answer, I hope in humility, was, well, of course I do. If I knew I was wrong, I would correct the error. We always want to hold to what is right, but that doesn't mean that we have the same degree of confidence and certainty about everything that we believe. Some things we should be willing to die for. Some truths we will die with. But there are other things that we think we're right, but we're open to new understanding and light in those areas. Well, we're studying the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13. I ask you to turn your Bibles to Mark 13. And that is something, that prophetic teaching of our Lord, I put in that third category. I'm bringing you a, an interpretation which I think is right. I think it squares with the, the facts of Scripture here. But I'm open to new light and new understanding in this area. And friends, I believe a healthy and humble Christian ought to have convictions that fit into each of those three boxes, things we're willing to die for, things that we'll likely die believing, and other things that we think we're right, but we're open to new light and new insight. Remember, as we come to Mark 13, that Jesus and his disciples are leaving the Jerusalem temple for the last time. In a few days, he would be arrested, tried, and crucified. And as they're leaving the temple precincts, we read in verse 2 that the disciples are enamored of the magnificent buildings. Do you see these great buildings? Or, I'm sorry, they say, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings in verse 1. They're enamored of the, the beauty and the majesty of the temple buildings. And then Jesus shocks them with these words. Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And then as they proceed to the Mount of Olives east of the temple, with this percolating in their mind what Jesus has just said, they ask him the question in verse 4, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Matthew's version puts it this way. The question they put to Jesus is this, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, in their minds, they were asking one question. If these temple buildings were ever to be destroyed, it must be when Jesus comes again, it must be the end of the age. 
But Jesus answers the question in a twofold way because Jesus knew that the destruction of the temple and his second coming are two separate events that will be separated by time. And so my breakdown of this discourse is this. Verses 5 to 13, which we considered last week, Jesus gives preliminary signs leading up to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. In verses 14 to 31, he seems to give one sign that the destruction of the temple is imminent. We'll look at that this morning. And then I believe at verse 32, he shifts to talking about his second coming. Well, last week, we considered from verses 5 to 13 some signs that Jesus gives, some markers that the temple's going to be destroyed. He called them birth pangs. When a woman has birth pangs, her uterus is contracting, and by those contractions, she will actually push the baby down the birth canal and eventually into the visible world. These are indications that the birth is not imminent, but it's coming. It's on its way. And so by these signs, Jesus is saying, the signs I give you, it shows that the destruction of the temple is coming. These are birth pangs. You're going to see them. What are they? Well, he talks about false Christs. False Christs will arise and, and deceive many. Well, we know from the New Testament, Acts chapter 5, that there were false Christs. Judas, Judas of uh, Galilee. And Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, mentions a lot of false Christs. It was a, a time, that first century, that was rather feverish with messianic claims. Jesus says there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. We saw the significance of that, that beginning in 17 BC, through the middle part of the first century, or two-thirds of the first century, the Roman Empire was at peace. It's called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. And it was enforced by the intimidating imperial army of Rome. But when Nero died by suicide in 68, all of a sudden things became unraveled. The, the Roman Empire almost collapsed. Nations began to defect from the Roman Empire. There were four emperors that rose to power within one year. The first three were brutally murdered. And so what Jesus said came to pass there in the first century. There were wars and rumors of wars, nation against nation. He also says that there will be earthquakes and famines. The book of Acts tells us of that one famine that was prophesied by Agabus. And the historians of that day, including Josephus, tell us of numerous famines and earthquakes in that period. Finally, Jesus predicted that before the temple is destroyed, the gospel will be preached to all the nations. Matthew actually says it will be preached in the whole world. And I said, well, that's a stumbling block to some. How can you stuff that into the first century when that hasn't yet happened? The gospel's going to be preached in the whole world before the temple is destroyed? Really? But then we compared scripture with scripture. Romans 1.8, Paul says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. And the word world is cosmos, which is a more general word than the word Jesus uses in Matthew 24. Colossians 1.6, the hope which has come to you just as in all the world also is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Colossians 1.23 speaks of the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven. In Romans 16.26 
Speaking of my Paul's gospel, he says it has been made known to all the nations. So you see, there is a way that we can believe that in some sense, if we understand the nations as being the Roman Empire at that time, that the gospel was proclaimed in all the the then known world before 70 AD. So I think it is comparing scripture with scripture possible that this fits within that time frame. But today we come to the next section of the discourse, what I'm just calling the Great Tribulation. And here we have the one great sign that says the destruction of the temple is imminent. You got these birth pangs, the famines, the earthquakes, the wars, the rumors of wars, the gospel being preached throughout the Roman Empire. It's coming, it's coming. But here is the great sign, the really big sign that tells you the destruction of the temple is imminent. One commentator calls this a critical juncture in the discourse. Follow as I read verses 14 to 23 of Mark 13. But, okay, you got the signs, you got the birth pangs, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of the house And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved for the sake of, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Let's consider this abomination of desolation in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. What is the abomination of desolation? Well, remember the question they asked back in verse 4. When will these things be? Referring to the destruction of the temple. Now, Jesus says, verse 14, but when? You see the abomination of desolation. When will these things be? When is the temple going to be destroyed, Lord? But when you see the abomination of desolation. Now, what is that? The Greek word abomination and the Hebrew word refers to something that is detestable, something loathsome, something foul, something abhorrent. It is used in the book of Leviticus to speak of unclean animals that they were not to eat, uh, things that swam in, this, in, the, in the water that didn't have fins or scales. Birds such as eagles, vultures, buzzards. They were unclean animals. They are referred to as an abomination. The word abomination is also used of idolatry, the idolatry of the nations. Jeremiah sixteen eighteen. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin because you have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abominations. First Kings eleven five speaks of Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. 
Another reference is to a king who made his son pass through the fire according to the abomination of abominations of the nations. So an abomination was something that was abhorrent, detestable, loathsome, unclean foods, and idols, which the jealous God of the Bible hates. Desolation, what about that? The word desolation, Greek, eremosis, means um, a a wasteland. Uh, The verb means to make desolate, to lay waste, to ruin. Matthew 12, 25 says, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. It's destroyed. It's ruined. So a desolation, something abhorrent, something loathsome that, that lays waste, that ruins. What's he referring to here? Well, this is not the first place that this abomination of desolation appears in the Bible. Three times in the book of Daniel, Daniel prophesies about an abomination of desolation. I'll just read those, those verses. Daniel 9, 27 And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Chapter 11, 31, forces from him will arise, desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. And they will set up the abomination of desolation. And then in 12, 11, from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, There will be 1,290 days. Now, we're not going to dig into all the complexities of Daniel's prophecy. But it is believed that these prophecies about an abomination of desolation were fulfilled in 168 BC when a, a Syrian king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes came and desecrated the Jewish temple. Now, the word Epiphanes is one he took to himself. It means manifest God. Can you imagine What arrogance, what blasphemy to claim that I am the manifest God. There's only one manifest God, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. His enemies actually did a play on his name and called him not Antiochus Epiphanes, but Antiochus Epimanes. Epimanes means madman or the insane one. Uh, You think you're God, we think you're crazy. But he desecrated the Jewish temple in 168 B.C., He came in, he slew 40,000 Jews. He sacrificed a pig on the altar. A pig is an unclean animal. Then he took the broth from the pig's flesh and sprinkled it all around the holy grounds. And then he erected the image of the Greek god Zeus above the altar. Friends, nothing could have been more abominable, more loathsome, more hateful to the Jewish people than that desecration of the temple. That was apparently the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy, the abomination of desolation, the abomination that lays waste, that desolates, yeah, desolates. He had laid waste to the temple in that way. Now, Jesus is prophesying that something along that order is going to happen again. Where? Standing where it should not be. The abomination of desolation, standing where it should not be. Matthew says, standing in the holy place. What is he referring to? Well, my contention, my understanding is that he's referring to the temple that was then standing. That was the temple they were marveling at. That was a temple about which they asked, when is this going to happen, Jesus? When is one stone not going to be laid upon another? Remember verse 30. Verse 30 in this discourse, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
So he's speaking of the abomination of desolation. Then he says these things are going to happen in this generation. That's why I understand Jesus to be talking about the abomination of desolation, which will take place in that Jewish temple in 70 A.D. Kind of sealing the point is Luke's version of the Olivet Discourse, where Luke says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Why can we apply this to 70 A.D.? When will the abomination of desolation take place? Well, Luke says it will be when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Friends, that's first century. That's 70 A.D. So the abomination of desolation seems to be a parallel to what happened in 168 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes came in and desecrated the temple by offering a pig and spreading its, its um, um, broth around the, the, um, the, the holy place and then making an offering, raising up the image of the Greek god Zeus. Something similar is going to happen again. It appears clear that this is referring to what happened in 70 AD and done by the Romans. But... What we need to understand is that the desecration of the temple in 70 AD didn't really begin with the Romans. It began with the Jewish zealots. These were anti-Roman freedom fighters, and they caused all kinds of havoc in Jerusalem around that time. There were three factions, and they were fighting against each other. There was brutal, brutal infighting. There were murders committed even in the temple. The zealots, one author says, committed numerous sacrileges, including murder within the Holy of Holies. And I'm going to quote quite a bit from Josephus in his wars. Remember, he is the Jewish uh, historian writing at the time this all happened. He was an eyewitness to these things. And his writings are just fascinating and really corroborate uh, the New Testament. He says, and now the outer temple was all of it overflowed with blood. And that day, as it came on, saw 8,500 dead bodies there. They were not killed by the Romans. They were killed by the Jewish seditious uh, rebels. And so a lot of the, the uh, desecration of the temple was already done by the Jews themselves. Here's another few quotes from I hope I don't weary you, but, but to really get the picture, you've got to hear what Josephus says. He says, there were continual sallies made one against another, as well as darts thrown at one another, and the temple was defiled everywhere with murders. They went over all the buildings and the temple itself and fell upon the priests and those that were about the sacred offices, inasmuch that many persons who came thither with great zeal from the ends of the earth to offer sacrifices at this celebrated place, which was esteemed holy by all mankind, fell down before their own sacrifices themselves and sprinkled that altar, which was venerable among all men, both Greeks and Jews, till with their own blood, till the dead bodies of strangers were mingled together with those of their own country and those of profane persons with those of the priests and the blood of all sorts of dead carcasses stood in lakes in the holy courts themselves. This was not done by the Romans. This was done by the Jewish zealots themselves. But the crowning act of abomination was certainly done by the Romans. It was when the Romans laid siege 
to the temple. They eventually came in, entered the temple. They came in with their Roman ensigns, and they went to an area which was not uh, for the, the Gentiles to go, and uh, that was the final abomination of desolation. But as I've spent several hours reading Josephus' Jewish, uh, Jewish Wars this week, this is what impressed me. The Roman general, Titus, did not want to destroy Jerusalem and did not want to destroy the temple. Numerous were his pleadings to the Jews to surrender. But so stubborn, so insolent were the Jewish rebels that he was forced to do what he did. Um, here's a, a quote I'll read to you. He often used, they often used Josephus. Josephus was a Jew. He was outside of the city. And they used Josephus as a mediator to try to appeal to his own people. Please get them to surrender. Here is Titus, the Roman general, in his kindness, appealing to the people through Josephus, who are within the city walls of Jerusalem. I appeal to the gods of my own country and to every god that ever had any regard to this place, for I do not suppose it to be now regarded by any of them. I also appeal to my own army and to those Jews that are now with me, those who had surrendered, and even to you yourselves, that I do not force you to defile this your sanctuary. And if you will not will but change the place wherein you will fight, no Roman shall either come near your sanctuary or offer any affront to it. Nay, I will endeavor to preserve you, your holy house, whether you will or not. As Josephus explained these things from the mouth of Caesar, both the robbers and the tyrant thought that these exhortations proceeded from Titus's fear and not from his goodwill to them, and they grew insolent upon it. Over and over again, Josephus was appealing to his own people to surrender, and he used every argument possible. Here were some of them. He said, look, at one point, the Romans, there were three walls around Jerusalem. The Romans had breached the first two. The third was the weakest. And he says, look, they've already breached these two walls. It will be nothing for them to breach this third wall. Please surrender. He appealed to them. The Romans respect your sacred right, your sacred place. They don't want to destroy the temple. He also argued the Romans are invincible. Look, you're not going to beat the Romans. Look how the Romans have conquered all these other nations. You can't defeat the Romans. Please surrender. He also says most of the city has already been taken. And then he says the famine, which was pressed, pressing hard upon the people, they were dying of famine. He said, even if the Romans don't destroy you, the famine is going to kill you. You're going to die of famine. And he said that the Romans are, quote, naturally mild in their conquests and preferred what was profitable before what their passions dictated to them. You see, get the picture that Titus and the Romans were not like Putin and the Russians. Look at what Putin and Russia is doing to, to Ukraine. They don't care. They're just decimating it, aren't they? It's going to have to be rebuilt. The Romans were not like that. They were not like that. They had more civility. They didn't want to have to destroy and so rebuild. And so what impresses me as I read these pages is, is the kindness, the compassion of this pagan Roman, Titus, and the stubbornness and the insolence of the Jews who would not give up. And so... The temple is desecrated and destroyed. 
along with the city in 70 AD, the abomination of desolation, Jerusalem surrounded by armies. So that's the abomination of desolation. I think it was fulfilled in 70 AD. Now the divine instruction. With this coming, you see he's giving birth pangs. These things are going to come. They're going to precipitate the destruction. But the real big sign that the destruction is imminent will be this abomination of desolation, this desecration of the temple. What were his readers to do? Verses 14 to 18. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. So what does he tell his people to do? This is coming down. The temple's going to be destroyed. The abomination of desolation is going to happen. What should you do? Well, he tells them where to escape to. Flee to the mountains. He knew that the Romans would pillage and ravage the farmlands and the villages. He says, head for the hills. Now, typically, when there's a war, you know where you go. You go within the city walls, right? Over in Europe, we visited some castles. When the enemy was coming, you got behind those castle walls for protection. And when the enemy's coming, typically you get within the city walls for protection. But Jesus knew the city was going to be destroyed. The temple was going to be destroyed. So he tells his people, don't go into the city. Get out of the city. Head for the hills. How were they to escape? With a sense of urgency. Now, the houses had flat roofs. That's another proof that we're talking about 70 AD. We're not talking about some future temple because the roofs were flat. And they were connected. Picture a bunch of row houses. And apparently you could run or walk along those roofs and go to the city gate and get out of the city. If you were working in the field, don't stop home to get the clothes uh, you had there. Go with the clothes on your back, a sense of urgency. He said it would be hard to escape for pregnant women or nursing mothers. And pray that it's not in winter because the roads would be muddy at that time and impassable. Matthew even says, pray that it's not on a Sabbath because the gates would be closed. They'd only be able to go a Sabbath day's journey. So he's telling them specifically what to do to avoid this tragedy that is coming upon Jerusalem and the temple. Did it happen? Well, Sam Storms notes that history tells us that the Roman commander Cestius without explanation and warning, withdrew his troops at a certain point, which gave the Jewish believers opportunity to flee the city, as Jesus said. Sam Storms quotes William Whiston from the 1700s, who is the best-known English translator of Josephus, the Jewish historian. And Whiston says this, there may be another very important and very providential reason be here assigned for this strange and foolish retreat of Cestius. The Roman general just withdrew without explanation at a certain point, which he says, if Josephus had, had been now a Christian, he might probably have taken notice of also. And that is the affording of the Jewish Christians in the city, an opportunity of calling to mind the prediction and caution given them by Christ about 33 years and a half before. 
that when they should see the abomination of desolation, that is the idolatrous Roman armies with the images of their idols in their incense, ready to lay Jerusalem desolate, stand where it ought not or in the holy place, or when they should see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, they should then flee to the mountains by complying with those by, by complying with which those Jewish Christians fled to the mountains of Perea and escaped of Celsius, of Cestius, this destruction. See what he's saying? If we look back, we see the providence of God. There was a reason that Roman general, for no reason, withdrew, giving the Christians an opportunity to, to get out of the city and flee to the mountains, as Jesus had said. And history tells us that very few, if any, Christians died in that great conflagration because they took Jesus' word seriously, and they got out of Dodge, so to speak, and they headed for the hills. Well, the Great Tribulation, my final point here. Notice verse 19. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Now, there's another phrase that we can stumble over. It leads some to say, this is not talking about 70 AD. This must be talking about something in the future at the end of the age. That will be something unprecedented and unrivaled, something we've never seen before. So the question is, how can we stuff that into the first century? Does this fit? Does what happened in 70 AD fit the description that there was never anything like it before and never anything like it afterwards? Does it really fit that language? Well, first of all, I want to give you a picture of some of the horror of that event. First of all, the famine. Just so you see how horrific it was that happened in 70 AD. Josephus again. Just talking about the famine. So all hope of escaping was now cut off from the Jews, together with their liberty of going out of the city. Then did the famine widen its progress and devoured the people by whole houses and families. The upper rooms were full of women and children that were dying of by famine and the lanes of the city were full of the dead bodies of the aged. The children also and the young men wandered about the marketplaces like shadows, all swelled with famine and fell down dead wheresoever their misery seized them. As for burying them, those that were sick themselves were not able to do it, and those that were hardy and well were deterred from doing it by the great multitude of those dead bodies and by the uncertainty there was how soon they should die themselves. And then, further, he tells a story of a certain cultured, wealthy woman. Now, there was a certain woman that dwelt beyond Jordan. Her name was Mary. Her father was Eleazar. She was eminent for her family and her wealth. So we're talking not about a crude woman, but a very cultured, wealthy woman. Brace yourself for this description, but this is what happened in that time. She then attempted a most unnatural thing, and snatching up her son, who was a child, sucking at her breast, she said, O oh, thou miserable infant, for whom shall I preserve thee in this, in this war, this famine, and this sedition? As to the war with the Romans, if they preserve our lives, we must be slaves. This famine also will destroy us, 
even before that slavery comes upon us, yet are these seditious rogues, these are the Jews, more terrible than both the other. Come on, be thou my food, and be thou a fury to these seditious varlets and a byword to the world. As soon as she had said this, she slew her son and then roasted him and ate the one half of him and kept the other half by her concealed. Upon this, the seditious came in presently and smelling the horrid scent of this food, they threatened her that they would cut her throat immediately if she did not show them what food she had gotten ready. She replied that she had saved a very fine portion of it for them and withal uncovered what was left of her son. Hereupon they were seized with horror and amazement of mind and stood astonished at the sight when she said to them, This is mine own son, and what hath been done was mine own doing. Come, eat of this food, for I have eaten it of it myself. After which those men went out trembling, being never so much affrighted at anything as they were at this, and with some difficulty they left the rest of that meat to the, to the mother. It's a horrific description. But this is the tribulation that they were under. Some of the Jews surrendered in the midst of the famine. Their bodies were so bloated, and this was true in the Jewish Holocaust, that they were so hungry for food, they stuffed the food into their bodies, and their bodies literally exploded, and they died. Other Jews who surrendered, they swallowed gold, thinking I'll preserve it again, and, and when I, once I'm outside the city, certain mercenaries who were, who were working for the Romans, Arabians, and Syrians, they found that the Jews had done this, and they said 2,000 Jews were dissected for the gold that they contained. Now, Titus, when he heard that, he was outraged. This thing doesn't happen in the Roman army. But it was a horrific, horrific event. But can it stand up to the description that there's no greater tribulation before or after? That's the question. Think about the three most ruthless men in history, the three most ruthless murderers in history. You know who they are? Hitler. Hitler not only slew six million Jews by genocide, but he is responsible, historians say, for the death of 16 to 20 million people. Joseph Stalin in Russia, they say, may have been responsible for the death of 40 to 60 million people, not only by killing them directly, but people who died in his gulags, his, his prison camps, people who died uh, from starvation because of his policies. And then Mao Zedong, in China, 25 million died in the labor camps, millions in the Cultural Revolution. They say that perhaps 60 to 80 million lives were slain under Mao Zedong, and he has the blood of that many on his hands. Now, in comparison, we read in Josephus that about 1,100,000 Jews were killed, and about 97,000 were taken as slaves. How can this be the greatest tribulation in history? That's the question. One argument against this being a future tribulation is this. He says, Jesus says, that um, this is a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Now, if we're talking about a tribulation at the end of the age or just before the millennium, as some who believe in the millennium would say, there's not going to be any time after that. So that's a moot point. There's not going to be anything greater after that because there's not going to be anything after that. 
Um, another defense of this applying to Jerusalem in the first century is some would say this was unmatched in terms of the percentage of people in one city that were destroyed. Yes, there were tens of millions who died over years, but this was one city that was virtually decimated. Everybody in the city virtually died or were taken as slaves. Another possibility, and I, I want to commend this to you, is that this is the language of prophetic hyperbole. You know, hyperbole is a deliberate overstatement. Jesus used hyperbole. He said, if your eye offends, you pluck it out. If your hand offends, you cut it off. He wasn't talking literally. It was hyperbolic to say, you better deal seriously with your sin. But it's not to be taken literally. And I think we find hyperbolic language in the prophets. For example, I'll just give you a couple of examples. In Exodus 11 and verse 6, we read this, and I think this is hyperbole. Not untruth. Moreover, there shall be a great cry in all the land of Egypt. This is the last plague that God brought upon Egypt. A great cry in all the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. Why, well, I dare say that those Jews in Jerusalem were crying out with anguish and agony. Is this the greatest cry that has ever been? I think it's hyperbolic. In Ezekiel 5 and verse 9, we read similarly. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. This is, he's going to send them off to Babylon, the Babylonian captivity. I'll never do it again. Never anything worse than that. And here's something interesting. Have you ever read in the Kings about a certain king being the greatest king that has ever arisen? And then another king is said to be the greatest king that has ever arisen. I puzzled over that, but I think it might be explained by hyperbole. I'll give you an example. In 2 Kings 18, 5 and 6, King Hezekiah is the king being spoken of. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. No king after him, better, no king after him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. No king before or after Hezekiah, was more devoted to the Lord. But five chapters later, we read of King Josiah in 2 Kings 23 and verse 25. Before him, Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Well, wait a minute. Well, who was the greatest, Hezekiah or Josiah? I think it's explainable by saying this is hyperbolic language to say both of these kings were wholly devoted to the Lord. So I think there is reason that we can say that the Great Tribulation actually refers to what happened in 70 AD to the Jews. But back to our text, to finish this text up, notice what Jesus says as this is coming down, unless the days had the Lord had shortened those days. No life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. We don't understand what this means, but for the elect's sake, for the sake of his elect believers, or maybe some of those who were coming out of, out of uh, Jerusalem, he intended to save. For some reason, in his mercy, he had those days shortened, and he showed mercy. 
And then we're told that at that time, false Christs and false prophets will arise with signs and wonders. The historians of that day tell us that that was the case. And they will lead astray, if possible, even the elect. I think that indicates a precious truth that it's not possible to lead the elect astray. Remember Jesus' words in John 10, when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus is saying, if you're a true sheep, you will not be led astray. If possible, they will mislead even the elect. The good news is it is not possible. So, at the end of verse 23, he says, But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now, the reason I believe that all of this can be stuffed into the first century is that Jesus is giving all these signs, these birth pangs, all these things are going to happen. And the big sign is the abomination of desolation. But when he comes to verse 32, I think then he shifts to his second coming. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the Son of Man. And so I think he's giving signs to what's going to happen in that generation between 30 and 70 AD. But about his second coming, there will be no such signs. So as I wrap up today, I do want to give a quote from Sam Storms in his book, Kingdom Come. It's a quote with which I agree. So it seems reasonable to believe that all of this that we have covered thus far can be stuffed into the first century and apply to what happened in 70 AD. But here's a little bit of a qualifier, okay? Like I said, some things we can't be rock solid certain about. We have to be humbly tentative, right? I hope you're there. So Sam Storm says, in conclusion... And he uses, he expounds Mar, uh, Matthew's version. In conclusion, my argument that Matthew 24, 4 to 31 refers immediately and primarily to the events leading up to and including the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 does not necessarily exclude the possibility that the end of the age is at least indirectly also in view. Listen carefully. It may well be that future events associated with the second advent of Christ at the end of the age are prefigured by the destruction of the temple and the city in 70. James Edwards argues that events surrounding the destruction of the temple and fall of Jerusalem are a type and foreshadowing of a final sacrilege before the eschaton. What he's saying, and I would hold out for this, I think this pertains to 70 AD. But could it be that what a lot of what happened here is a little bit of a foreshadowing, a type of what will happen at the end of the age? I think that's possible. And a lot of commentators say that. Now, does that mean that everything's going to happen exactly with a future rebuilt temple? I think that's totally fanciful. And that's a violation of biblical hermeneutics. I think he's talking about the first century here. However, Given the prophetic perspective, this may presage or may foreshadow things that will happen at the end of the age. That's where I have to say, I'm not sure. And I don't think you should be either. Okay? Let's quickly make some applications. What are we possibly going to apply to ourselves from what happened in 70 AD, the abomination of desolation and the Great Tribulation? A couple things. 
First of all, tribulation is always going to be part of the Christian experience. Tribulation, whether if that was the great tribulation, whether there's tribulation coming, a great tribulation at the end of the age, I'm not sure. One thing I know, and you can know, tribulation will always be part of the Christian experience. Why do I know that? Jesus said in John 16, 33, in this world, you will have tribulation. I have over, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 16, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. New believers in Acts 14, 22 were told through many tribulations, same word, flipsis, you must, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Throughout the New Testament, we are told that tribulation awaits us in the Christian life. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7, 5, using the same word tribulation or the verb form flibo, he says in 7, 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted. We had tribulation on every side, conflicts without, fears within. This life will be filled with tribulations. We will have tribulations coming at us from outside of us that we're not spared sickness and disease and and economic woes and, and the results of living in a fallen world. And we will have tribulation coming from within us. The, the sin that remains in our hearts and the, the anxieties and the fears, we will be there will be attempts to deceive us by false teachers, attacks by demons, rejection by the world. This world will be one in which we as Christians will have tribulation. But here's the good news. I close with this. We will never be fatally deceived or defeated. Notice how Jesus said to deceive, if possible, even the elect. It is not possible to deceive the elect. It is not possible because of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8. When he talks about the elect, and he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. And he says, for I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, I don't know what tribulations we will face individually, as families, or collectively in this world as the people of God. I don't know. I don't have all that figured out. But this we can know for certain. Whatever tribulation we face, our loving Father has ordained it. He has ordained it for our good because all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. He will be with us in it, and he will bring us safely through it into his heavenly kingdom. That we know. Well, let's pray and come to the supper. Lord, help us to understand things that are difficult, but help us to cling to the things we know for sure. We will have tribulation in this world, but thank you, Lord Jesus, that you have overcome the world and we could cheer up and have hope because of that. Father, we thank you in Jesus' name.